Please turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. Seven motivations of the Christian life. This is our third session, you might say, or part of the series. And we are looking at, hopefully this won't be confusing, we are looking at the discipline of God. Now this is part two. Now, the issues of motivations, what is a motivation? What do you mean by the seven motivations of the Christian life? I know some people say, well, there's only one motivation. It's the grace of God. Well, that is certainly one, and that is really over, I guess you might say, over everything, but it is not the only one. God uses many things in our lives to motivate us, and so I think we need to ask the question, what is a motivation? Well, a motivation is something that causes you to move or act. Something that causes you to move or act. Some synonyms for motivation would be a stimulus, incentive, a reason, or a drive. Something that drives you to do something. You're motivated. It motivates you. That's the idea. Now, God uses many things in our lives to motivate us as his children to serve him. In Philippians 2 and verse 12, it says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, again, it isn't work for your salvation. People read into that and they say, see here, you got to do good works to go to heaven. I've had many people tell me that. And they'll put it on verse 12. No, he's writing to believers here. And he's saying, you need basically, if I could put it this way, you need to give your salvation a workout. You have salvation within you if you've trusted Christ the Savior, and now work that out, work out that. In other words, live the Christian life the way you're supposed to as a believer. Verse 13, here you go. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You notice God is working in us both to will, in other words, to get us to want to, that's a motivation. To get us to want to, and also not only to want to do his will, but do his will, his good pleasure. And so God uses many things in our lives down through our Christian lives to motivate us to faithfulness to him, because he wants his children to be obedient. And if you've trusted Christ, you're a child of God. Getting into where we left off last time in very quick review, we talked about the discipline of God. Now, discipline, the discipline of God is for his children, and it involves both trials that he puts us through, not necessarily based on anything we've done wrong, and also chastening or discipline, okay? It includes both trials and chastening, the pressure and circumstances that this brings into our lives oftentimes helps us, motivates us to make the right choices in life. When we have things happen in our lives, it can purify us, it can motivate us to therefore think more properly, and when we think more properly, we can make better choices. That's a motivation. Do you see where we're going with this? This is very, very important. Now, let's answer some questions quickly, which we've covered more in detail two weeks ago or three weeks ago. First, this, what is chastening? What does it mean? Well, at the root of the word chastening, we have the word chastise. One dictionary says this, it's a verb meaning to discipline, to chasten, to instruct, to teach, and yes, to punish. That is one of them, but that's not the only one. We usually look at the discipline of God as simply a negative, 
topic, but please get this today, folks. The word for chasten in and of itself doesn't always mean a punishment idea. As an example of this, let me show you in in, uh, Titus chapter 2, in verse 11, it says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, verse 12, teaching us, do you see that? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The word teaching there in verse 12 is the same root word as is translated chasten in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, which is where we'll be going in just a minute. So when you see the word chasten, it doesn't automatically mean punishment. It can also mean instruction. It can also mean teaching. So keep that in mind because there are times, folks, when we are going through life and we're walking with the Lord and we're rejoicing in him and we're enjoying his fellowship and we're being obedient and we're yielded to the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us as believers. And all of a sudden, a major trial of life comes upon us. And it's easy for us to say, Lord, what's going on? I haven't done anything wrong to deserve this. Well, maybe you didn't, and maybe what's come, it's not necessarily punishment. Maybe it's just a teaching moment from God. There's a lesson we have to go through that we would not learn except that God would bring us through this testing or this time of teaching. Now, I said all that, though, to say this. Chastening can certainly be negative as far as for something we've done wrong and be a, for lack of a better term, spiritual spanking or even worse. It is used that way many times in scripture, but context is always the key. Context is always the key. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, which is usually what most people think of the passage when we talk about chastening. Hebrews chapter 12, I lovingly dedicate this message today to those who do not believe that God chastens his children. I get emails, several of them a year, that say, God doesn't chasten children. We're under grace. God doesn't chasten. And I'm thinking to myself, boy, you haven't been reading your Bible. The word is in there all the time. What do you mean God doesn't chasten? I think today, after you come through this message with me today, I think you'll understand, yeah, God does chasten his children. We know he does. Why? Well, you don't need anything more than Hebrews 12, verse 6. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth, here's two key words, every son whom he receiveth. Now, he loves and he chastens or disciplines us. And not only that, but look what else it says, scourges. Now, that word scourge is a very powerful word. It means to whip or to flog. It is the exact same word that talked about what they did to the back of the Lord Jesus Christ before he was crucified. Verse 7, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he of whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye illegitimate and not sons. And so what do we see? First, what is chastening? We've defined that. Number two, what is the attitude behind the Lord chastening us? We see that the Lord chastens us according to Hebrews 12, 6, because he loves us. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourges every son whom he receives. See, folks, God is the perfect parent. 
He knows exactly what we need and brings that into our lives when we need it. He's watching us all the time. And by the way, he is not obligated to us to give us a warning or announcement. He's God, he's the Father, he's in charge. And that's the way it should be in the family of God. He is in the business of developing us spiritually and making us effective for him. If it were not for his chastening and his teaching, we would not be nearly as effective in any kind of ministry as we are, okay? But as time goes on, God disciplines us, he chastens us, whether it's through teaching or through scourging, and he teaches us lessons in life that mature us and make us better for his glory. He does not want our lives to be destroyed, so he steps in and he works in our lives, and sometimes the lessons we learn are painful lessons, But folks, we end up being better because of it. And that motivates us. His chastening motivates us to do what is right. Now, who will be chastened? Well, all the children of God will be chastened. You see that in verse 7 and verse 8. Verse 7, for what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? Do you see that? So if you're a child of God, you will be chastened sometimes. Now, don't let that ruin your day. Just see it as a mark of God. You know, um, I've shared this before, and I'll I'll just mention it briefly. I got saved in 1972. Right off the bat, I got saved, and I was interested in spiritual things. I started going to church, and, and I wanted to grow, but I wasn't going to a good church. I really didn't even understand what church was. And so I did good for about a month, and then I kind of fizzled out, and I went backward. And as that year went on, that first year of my Christian life, probably around seven months or so after having been born again, I started being kind of troubled in my soul. I was so excited. When I first got saved, it was like I was, I was, like I was in the clouds. I can remember that night going home and going to bed and I was laying in bed and I felt like I was six inches off the, off the mattress. I mean, I was so pumped up and so charged and so excited about the Lord. But as that time went on, that excitement started waning. Okay. And started going away. And after a period of time, it started troubling me. And then I started sensing, you know what? Now, listen, I don't know how God deals with you, but he's usually in my life, he's been very gentle, very gentle. He isn't always that way with his children, but he's been many times, that's the way he deals with me, very gentle, okay? Probably because I'm a wimp, I don't know, but I'm not going to go too hard on you, you can't take it, you know, I don't know. Anyway, but I started feeling alienated from God. I started feeling, you know what, I feel distance. I know I'm saved. By the way, I was living worse during some of that time than I was before I was saved. You must not have been saved. Oh, I was saved, but I knew I couldn't go to hell. But I didn't know how to handle the liberty, the freedom that I had. So anyways, I started sensing there was really something wrong, and I started being troubled by that. And I didn't know what it was at the time. I hadn't really learned. I hadn't been going to church But it was, I can look back now, it was the conviction of the Holy Spirit in my life. And he was teaching me by giving me a troubled spirit. I was unsettled. I was troubled. 
Something was gnawing at me. I was being convicted. And what happened is that is what drew me back to him. Now, I look at that now and I say, you know, that was God's way of chastening me, teaching me as a babe in Christ. But I'll tell you what, once I came back and started learning the word and started getting grounded, man, I didn't want to turn back. Now, that was just, to me, that was it. No, this is the way I want to live my life. So that was just me. It's not always the same with everybody, but that's the way it was with me. Now, so who, we say, he chastens every son whom he receives. Who is the child of God? Now, this is important. You might say, well, everybody's God's child. No, they're not. No, they're not. Only those who have trusted in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior are the children of God. I want you to hold your place here in Hebrews. We'll be back, Hebrews 12. Turn with me over to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And we're going to look at it, and not verse 16. We could do that, but we're going to look at verse 18 because it makes it very clear. What is the difference between a person ending up in heaven or a person ending up in hell? I'd say, what about purgatory? No such thing. Man-made. Nowhere in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture. We go by the Word of God. See, purgatory is man-made. It is a false doctrine based on merit, based on how you live. Going to heaven is not based on how you live. Going to heaven is based on what you believe. There's a big difference between the two. In John chapter 3 and verse 18, it says this, He that believeth on him, Jesus Christ, is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Let me explain this to you. Maybe you're here today and you're not sure where you're going when you die. You can get it settled before this message is ever done. Let me show it to you in an illustration. If this hand represents you and me, we're going to let my wallet represent all the things we do wrong. God calls those sins. Here we are. We are all sinners, including me. Yet the Bible says God loves us. He hates our sin. You see, friends, our sin separates us from God. You cannot go to heaven with any sin. All your sin has to be gone. If that's true, and it is, because the Bible says in Revelation 21, 27, not even one lie can enter there. I've had people say this. Well, if you confess your sin, it's a, it, no, no, no. Confessing your sin is only admitting that you've done it. It doesn't pay for it. You need a payment for your sin. Because we have broken God's laws, we are guilty, and there's a payment, there's a penalty that goes with that. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. If we are to pay for our own sin, it's not by good works. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. We would have to die and spend forever separated from God in hell. Now, many people, though, they still believe that their good works are what gets them to heaven, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. So there's nothing I can do to work this sin off. The only payment is death. I would have to die not only physically, but be separated from God and spend eternity condemned. That's what it says in John 3.18. So then what am I going to do? Well, that is why God sent his son into the world. This hand representing the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless son of God, God in the flesh. He came to earth for one reason, the Bible says, Jesus said it, to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, how many are lost? 
All. So how many did he come to seek and save? All. All. By the way, that completely does away with the man-made doctrine of Calvinism. One verse. It's all you need is one. (laughs) If all are lost and he came to seek and to save, those that are lost, all are lost, and he came to seek and to save everybody. And I'm glad because that includes me and that includes you. You know, you can go up to any person, according to the word of God, you can go up to any person in the world and say, God loves you and he sent Jesus to die for you and he did and he paid for all your sins and he came back from the dead. And if you'll put your faith in him, if you'll believe in him that he did that for you, you will be given eternal life. That's the message of the Bible. Here we are, we're sinners, can't save ourselves. Jesus came, he took that sin upon himself and he made the payment so we don't have to. He paid for it came back from the dead. Now, if all your sins are gone, then what's going to keep you out of heaven? Well, nothing. But you see, you have to believe he did that for you. If you say, no, I don't believe that. I think I can earn my way. Then you're saying, I'm going to be responsible for my sin. Well, you're going to have to die and spend forever separated from God because a death payment must be made. See, the good news of the gospel is this. Jesus made the death payment necessary. He did it so you don't have to. When you believe in him as your savior, he gives you everlasting life. All your sin is gone. Nothing to send you to hell. Nothing to keep you out of heaven. That's what it says in John 3, 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Why? One reason, because you have not believed. You've not trusted in the name of the only begotten son of God. Jesus, his name means God who is our Savior. So if you haven't trusted Christ, trust in him right now, would you do that? And if you will, you become a child of God. Now let's move on, number four. And this is picking up where we left off last time. Why does God chasten us? Now here you go. Because he's mean? No. Because he wants to inflict pain in the lives of his children? No. Because he's waiting with a lightning bolt in his hand, and as soon as we step out of line, (laughs) no. Why does God chasten us? Well, one reason we see in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 10 is that we might be partakers of his holiness. It says, for they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, talking about human parents, fathers. But he, God chastens us, why? For whose profit? Our prophet, that we might be partakers, sharers, partners of his holiness. It is to motivate us. Now listen, seven motivations of the Christian life. He chastens us to motivate us to serve him so that we will become more godly as believers. See, folks, God cannot bless rebellion. He can't bless sin. Would you reward your children for rebelling towards you? If your little child, little Jimmy, comes up to you and he kicks you in the knee and you're there writhing in pain, you're not going to say, oh, thank you, Jimmy. Let me give you some candy for that. No, you're not going to do that. And God can't bless rebellion either. But he does bless obedience. He chastens us so that we will learn obedience, so that we will walk with him and be partakers of his holiness and enjoy his fellowship in our lives. This is all good, folks. This is all good. So that we might be partakers of his holiness. But secondly, 
it will yield in our lives or produce the peaceable fruit of righteousness. How many of us want peace each day, right? You want to have peace in your life? Chastening is one of the things that God uses in our lives to motivate us to live for him. And when we do, we can experience the peace of God. When you get saved, you have peace with God, but God wants us to experience the peace of God. And so he brings trials and even scourging sometimes into our lives if we're in rebellion so that we can get straightened out so that he can bless us instead of discipline us. Verse 11, Hebrews 12, 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Yeah, it's not fun going through that. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Growing up, were you ever exercised by your parents? One source said this, by chastening, the Lord separates the sin that he hates from the sinner whom he loves. Beautiful. See, folks, it is God motivating and training us. He can do it in many ways. Let's move on. He chastens us so that our lives are not destroyed by sin. When God intervenes in our lives in this way, he is trying to deliver our lives from being destroyed, from being wrecked. And so he steps in. Any good parent, if they see a pattern of rebellion in the wrong path, if you're a good parent, you are going to intervene in the life of your child to help them with that. It shows you love them. Imagine as an example, a little child They're out in the yard and there's a venomous snake, a poisonous snake there, maybe a rattlesnake or something. And you know, babies, rattles and so forth. So the tail's going like this, rattling and your child, oh, oh, and your child starts going over to pick up the rattlesnake. What would you do? Just say, well, you know, experience is the best teacher. (laughs) Bad parent, bad. (laughs) You need to wear the cone of shame. Some of you know what that is. Anyway. No, what would you do? You would move quickly to stop them. Why? Maybe you might even have to knock them down or knock them out of the way. Anything to save their life from destruction. And folks, sometimes God has to use extreme measures in our lives to block us from a terrible mistake that we are about to make Which leads us to number five, how does God chasten us? Well, at this point, we are going to look at just a few of the many various ways in which God disciplines his children. Listen carefully to what I am about to say. Keep in mind, though, that every time a trial or something bad happens in a believer's life, it does not necessarily mean that God is chastening them. It sometimes is just a matter of sowing and reaping. We made a wrong choice, there's a bad result in that, right? It definitely could, though. And by the way, it is not for me to tell you that God's chastening you when something goes wrong in your life. That's for you to figure out. Now, if you think you know what's going on and you want to talk about it with me or somebody else, feel free to do that. But it's not my, you know, let's say for an example... Well, a few months ago, we had our older Honda, which, by the way, our older Honda will be 17 years old, Memorial Day weekend. So, no, we're not throwing a party for it, but but anyway. 
But recently, in the church parking lot here, somebody came and stole our catalytic converter off of that Honda. So anyway, the last thing I would have needed is for you to run up to me and say, Pastor, you've got some unconfessed sin in your life? Well, you know, after I knock your lights out, I will. I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. How does God chasten us, though? See, I don't need you to tell me that God's chastening me. That's between me and God. The Father doesn't broadcast to all of the children of God, hey, I'm going to nail this guy tomorrow. No. How does God do it? Can I give you some biblical ways that we see in the text? Now, again, this is all Bible. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11. And one of the ways he does it, one thing he can do, I emphasize the word can, because this thing that I'm going to mention to you is very common, and it is the issue of physical sickness. God can chasten us through physical sickness. He can cause us to get sick. He can cause something to go wrong with us physically. Does that mean that every time I get a cold that God is chastening me, disciplining me for something that I've done? No. It could be, though. See, that's between me and him. I need to figure that out with him. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. the Corinthian church were saved people, but they were very fleshly carnal. They were not living for Christ the way they should. And they came to the Lord's Supper, communion, and they were being very um, disrespectful about it, and they had unconfessed sin, and things were not right. They were not handling things right. And it says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation or judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Verse 30 now, for this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. Weak and sickly. There were people in the church that God made weak and sickly because they were sinning against God and they weren't taking care of it. They weren't confessing it to the Lord, making things right between them and God. So God had to intervene because they were being disrespectful to the Lord's Supper. He intervened and some of them he made them sick and some of them he made weak, okay? Not only that, but it goes on here also in the same passage, another one, and this may surprise some, and you know, I've had Christians even looking at these verses say, I don't believe it. Can you imagine a Christian looking at the word of God saying, I don't believe it? Number two, physical death. Physical death. Oh, that's not my God. Well, you must not have the God of the Bible then. Because the Bible is clear that God can and does do that to some of his children. Physical death. Verse 30. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. Okay. The word sleep here is a word used to talk about a believer who has gone and physically died and gone home to be with the Lord. They go to heaven, but God takes the life of that child of God. We also see the case Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter five, right? They deceived in Acts chapter five. God struck Ananias dead. His wife came in later. She didn't know what was going on. The early disciples didn't tell her that he was already dead and gone. They asked her the same question. She told the same lie. Out of here. She was gone. Can God do that? Yes, he can do that. Does he do it? I believe he does. 
I can think back, and I can't prove it, but I can think back to some people that I've known, my Christian life. Christians, they were born again. They knew they had eternal life. You talk to them, they were solid on the gospel, as anybody you've ever heard. Yet they refused to submit their lives to their father. And the time came when God says, that's it, I'm taking you home. I'm taking you. They didn't go to hell. If they're saved, they went to heaven. But God took them. And we have those examples recorded in the Bible. And it's talked about it right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So physical sickness, physical health, or physical death, excuse me. Here's another one, financial struggles. Those who use their money for false priorities. Those who don't give as they should to God's work, okay? It's something that we should do. Does God bring physical or financial struggles into the life of that person? Yes, he can He can do that. Does that mean that if you're having a hard time making ends meet, that that's what God's doing in your life? That's not for me to answer. That's for you to answer. I'm not your judge. God is, right? Where do we see that? Well, I'll give give you one example. Haggai. I know everybody's been doing deep study in Haggai lately. (laughs) But in Haggai chapter 1 and verse 5, it says this, Now therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts. See, here's Haggai, okay? It was time for them to rebuild the temple. But instead of the people investing and giving their time and money to that, what they were doing is they were just using their money for themselves. And it says, Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little, but you have not enough. You've sown much, you brought in little, you don't, you don't have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. He that earneth wages, earneth wages, put it into a bag with holes. So you're making money, you're saving money, and you're losing it. Financial struggles. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, he says, consider your ways. Yeah, you think? Let me give you another one, persecution. The Lord did this many times in the lives of the children of Israel. He brought persecution to them. As a matter of fact, he told them that he would, listen, he told the children of God that he would send enemies to them because of their rebellion. You talk about messing up your life. Where do I see that? Deuteronomy 28 in verse 47. It says, because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things, therefore shalt thou serve thine enemies, which the Lord shall send against thee. You notice why he's sending enemies? Because they wouldn't serve the Lord. He's disciplining them. Therefore shalt thou serve thine enemies, which the Lord thy God shall send against thee in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and in want of all things. And he shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck until he have destroyed thee. Why? Because they were in rebellion to their God. And so he had to chasten them. (laughs) Read the book of Judges, right? Over, and there was that cycle over and over. They go into rebellion 
they have all kinds of troubles. They cry out to God, God to send a judge to deliver them. And then once they had some little time of prosperity and the blessing of God, they would go back into the flesh and they would get all messed up again and they would be in trouble and God would send a judge. They cry out to God, God send them another judge to deliver them. You see the cycle over and over and over in the book of Judges. It's exactly what we're talking about. Persecution, problems. Here's one we can all relate to, car problems. Car problems. Does that mean every time something goes wrong with your car that it's God chasing you? No, not necessarily. Friday night, our little check engine light came on in that same Honda that I was telling you about. (laughs) Anyway, fortunately, it's going in for an oil change tomorrow morning, so I figured I'll just wait. And uh, my mechanic is two blocks away, so that's convenient. Hopefully nothing happens between home and there. I don't think it will, but we'll go in, have them check it out. Now, it didn't go through my mind one time, okay, is God disciplining me for this? Not that I know of. I'm open to God's conviction. He knows that. I try to be very sensitive to the Lord in my own life. But it could be. That's between you and God. Car problems. This is also a way for the Lord to get our attention. And boy, can he get our attention through that. Here's another one. Again, every time this happens doesn't mean it's God chastening or scourging, but it could be accidents. Accidents. Boy, that'll wake us up, right? There are times when God has to get our attention, and this can be a life-changing event. And listen, I don't wish any of these things on anybody, but these are ways God works in our lives. And why would he do it? To wake us up to where we would learn a lesson, confess our sin if it's because of sin, and then walk with him again so we can enjoy his fellowship and blessing. It's always a good reason. It's always out of love, folks. Love is written all over it. Here's another one, loss of a job. I don't say that lightly. When you are all of a sudden unemployed, would this not cause a child of God to seek the Lord? Wow, that's a big one. That's a big one. And I know it's happened to some of you. You walk in to work one day, and they say, we got to let you go. Probably went out to your car thinking, Lord, what is going on? Right? It could be just teaching, or it could be scourging. How do you know which one, pastor? Examine your life. Here's one. It's tough. The death of a child. The death of the... No, God would never do that. Well, turn with me to 2 Samuel. This may sound very cruel, but we see it in the life of David when his illegitimate son, born from Bathsheba, was taken by the Lord. David had eyes for Bathsheba, committed adultery. Then he had his Bathsheba's husband murdered. He dealt with that. David carried that for about a year. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we'll jump down to verse 13. It says, And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. And by the way, he should have died, according to Jewish law, but he did not. How be it, watch verse 14, How be it because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, The child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. 
And he did. And it was a heartbreak for David. And rightfully so. But don't tell me God can't do it. And it was because of his sin. And by the way, he at this point confessed the sin, but God said, no, you have to learn this lesson, son. You have to learn this lesson. See, there is the warning of it to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3.19. And men, it says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. There's the warning to the Hebrew believers in the book of Hebrews. Tell you what, this is the last one on this. Turn with me over to Hebrews very quickly. Hebrews 10. Lots of warning in the book of Hebrews. Now, the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish people who had trusted Jesus as their Messiah, and they started growing as believers, but it was a time of persecution, and so difficulties came into their lives, and they started not progressing in the Christian life. So God gives them, in the book of Hebrews, several warnings about, listen, guys, if you don't turn around, if you don't get on track, here's some things that can happen to you. Here's some warnings. And this is the last one. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, it says this. And he's talking to believers here. He includes himself, the writer. For if we sin willfully after that we receive the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Now, why is that? Well, because Jesus once for all paid for sin. And if you've trusted him as Savior, you don't need to be saved again. You don't have to do it again. You're saved. But... A certain fearful looking for of judgment and fire indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye, he's writing to believers, Jewish believers, suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant whereby he was sanctified, save person, he's already been sanctified, counting the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite or insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge whose people? His people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Whew, wow. I don't know about you, you know. You might say there's two sides to God. There's the chastening side of God and there's the blessing side. I want to walk on the blessing side. The word we in this verse refers to believers. We are under grace, which is better than any other time in history. Because of this, if we rebel, we can receive, according to this passage, even worse chastening. Why? Because we really should know better. We have it better off than any group of believers in all of history. So then, what do we do if we suspect that God is chastening us, okay? Turn a corner here. Well, the best thing to do is to surrender to him. You sense God's chastening? Just raise a white flag. Lord, I surrender. Your will be done. What do you want of me, Lord? What would you have me to do? Isn't that a good posture for a child to a parent? Yes, Daddy. Whatever you say, Daddy. I'll obey you, Daddy. Instead of, oh, yeah? Let me see how I can get around what he's saying. If you're a good parent, they're not going to get around it. You're not going to allow it. Yes, Lord, I'll do what you say. I'll be an obedient child. Folks, there is no question that the fear of chastening is a biblical motivator. 
I don't want to be disciplined by God. I don't want to be scourged, okay? Do I want to be taught? Yeah, and and you know what? I'm going to have to go through some trials in my life, things where I haven't necessarily done anything wrong, but there are major trials that may come my way that God puts me through to teach me life lessons that are just going to refine me and make me more mature and better as a believer. That's the teaching part. It isn't necessarily because of sin in my life. But boy, I'll tell you what, I don't want it to be because of sin in my life. And I hope you don't either. Yes, at times, the chastening of God can be a negative motivation, but we can see that it has God's love written all over it. He disciplines us for our own good. It is healthy to be aware of what God can do to us if we do not follow him as we should. It is a motivation to keep us in line so that we can experience the abundant blessings of God. Do you see, folks? Yet afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. That's not meanness on God's part. That's love on God's part. He loves us so much, he doesn't want us to go astray and get wrecked by the trash of this world, following the junk of this world. One last verse here in Psalm 119, verse 67 The psalmist sums it up and he puts it this way, and I couldn't put it any more clear than what we have in Scripture, of course, because Scripture is Scripture. It says this in Psalm 119, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now, and the suggestion here, and you can see, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now, in other words, I went astray and then I was afflicted, but now have I kept thy word. That's how we learn. It's motivating. It's not comfortable, but it's a motivation nonetheless. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, would you do it today? God loves you. Jesus paid for your sins, and he's offering you eternal life as a free gift. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he, God, hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Please trust in Christ as your Savior today. Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.